Welcome to Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. My name is Phil Strum. I'm so glad you joined me today. My guest today is from the old school. He's one of the people behind the launch of the new Powertown action figures. It's former AWA wrestler Greg Gagne. Greg, of course, is the son of wrestling icon, the late Vern Gagne. He's someone with so much real-life perspective on that age of wrestling, both his dad's era that he grew up in and also his own era from the 70s through the 90s and even a bit into the present time. Honestly, as I mentioned to him, I was scrolling online one day and I came across these figures and they were so different. The first six that came out with were Vern Gagne, Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen, Magnum TA, Kerry Von Erich, and Luthez. Pretty exciting to see what other names from wrestling's storied past might be in future editions. So we not only talk about the Powertown figures now they came to be, but also Greg's career and his history too. So here we go right now with Greg Gagne. Very honored to be joined by one of the stars of the 1980s and the legendary AWA. It's the one and only Greg Gagne. Greg, welcome to Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversation. So glad you joined well, me today. Well, Phil, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I understand you guys have a fantastic program. and A lot of great comments from around the wrestling world about your podcast. So I'm anxious to get going here and see how bad you can bury me. Thank you so much. Uh, so I've always wanted to interview you, but recently I was scrolling on Instagram and I see these really sharp looking action figures of wrestlers from the past, like Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen called Powertown. And I got to thinking who's behind this. And I discovered that you're a piece of this puzzle. How did this uh, come about crossing your desk? Well, it came, it came about through a gentleman by the name of Steve Rosenthal. And Steve was with Remco Toys back in the, in the early 80s, late 70s and 80s. And uh, he, he developed the, uh, in fact, the uh, uh, Karate Kid and a number of other big items. And his son was, uh, they lived up in New York, and his son was a wrestling fan. And he said, Dad, why don't we do wrestling? Why don't you ever do a wrestling figure? So Steve, as the story goes, he went to Vince McMahon because that's where he was from, up in the New York area. And uh, he had a meeting with him. Vince was interested, wanted to bring, bring, bring back a proposal and wanted some upfront money. And uh, Steve brought that back, what he asked for. And Vince uh, said, well, I need more than that now. And he wanted to change the contract. And it went on to a third meeting. And the third meeting, he, 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 after the second one, he said, we had a deal. And Vince, yeah, we got a deal. So Steve came back a third time. And Vince was sitting across the table from him and threw a magazine at him. He said, you know these people? He said, yeah, they're a competitor of mine. And he said, well, I signed with them. They're going to do our action figures. So Steve did some research and he found uh, my father, Vern, and the AWA and the reputation that he had. Steve came to us. We did the action figures in the 80s, the first time they did wrestling action figures. And Steve ran it for seven years. It was very, very successful. It was one of the most successful items that he produced. And uh, he retired. And then... Uh, a couple of years ago, he gave me a call and he said, how would you like to get back into the action figure business? I said, well, what do you have in mind? And he ran a couple of things back. And I said, you know, the only way I would get back into it is so we've, we could represent the people that really, the icons, the legends that built this industry. And he said, what do you mean? I said, we go back to the 50s. You've got guys, you know, Vern Gagne, Lou Thez, Dick the Bruiser, Killer Kowalski. Uh, Antonio Rocca, Harbold Haggerty, Argentine, uh, uh, or Edward Carpentier and, and Rocca, and a whole lot of others. And these are the guys that built the industry and never had that opportunity, their families, of uh, you know, making the 
merchandising money that the, the WWE is making for their talent now. And he said, man, that's a fantastic idea. So I went to work, started calling around, find, finding some of these families. I mean, you know, the guys from that era are all passed away, but finding the families, the families were so excited to get on board that we've signed over 200. We've got men, women, we've got the little people, referees, the announcers from that era. So we've got a, a collaboration here of, of talent that is unbelievable right up through the 80s. And uh, we had our first series in Kong Brody and Stan Hansen and then Kerry Von Erich and Magnum TA. And it's been a, we've got excellent reviews from all over the world on how great these action figures, how realistic they, they look. How hard is it for a company like this to get these get the details right and what's the feedback been like so far to uh to power town well the feedback has been that they're the most outstanding action figures anybody has seen and two of the gentlemen um uh, that are on board are from the mcfarland group and mcfarland knows one of the creators of action figures from around the world and they're the, they're the best and these two gentlemen are fantastic and um did you get a chance to see the figures at all Oh yeah, definitely. You know, each one is a different size too. You know, King Kong Brody was six foot seven when they made him taller. Uh, the heads and the faces are um, so well done and so realistic that, uh, you know, between the bodies, uh, the, the, the heads, the, the uh, attire that they're wearing, the championship belts, um, the collectors are going wild. In fact, after the second day that they were on the market, we saw the first King Kong Brody uh, on uh, on, YouTube, or on uh, Facebook for uh, $250 and it ended up going for $550. Last week, a Kerry Von Erich sold for $1,800. So uh, people are buying them and they're loving them. And you mentioned uh, you have so many people signed up for, you know, further ones uh, down the line. Um, it, it's so interesting, too, that you're doing it with, you know, people who not, aren't necessarily, because I know, obviously, you know, you got to have the, the rights to be able to do them. Uh, I'm sure WWE has a lot of those, you know, from certain certain wrestlers over the years. But um, it's it's really cool that you're just doing them with with people who haven't necessarily had, I mean, the era that you're going from is even just an interesting one in that, you know, these didn't exist when, when, when you were, you know, no. when you were a child. No, they didn't. No, it's, it's been, it's been really, it's been a fascinating uh, opportunity for me. Uh, just getting back and talking to all these people. I mean, I was on the phone for eight to 12 hours a day and this went on for months signing these people and, and every one of them had a story. Yukon uh, Eric's wife, or Don Leo Jonathan's wife, Rosalie, 85 years old. So she had me work with her son, but she told me stories and that. So I had to call her one day and I called her and she gets on the phone. And she, I said, Rosalie, are you all right? What's wrong? Well, I've been working out. She's <laughs> five years old. I said, fantastic. Great for you. You know, the mighty Atlas, another one. Uh, and the family, you know, they send me pictures, they send me news clippings and they talk for hours about, you know, their parents or their grandparents and uh, the stories I'm getting from them. Uh, Paul Vachon. Wow. I get a hold of the butcher. 
And Butcher says, the only way I'm going to sign is if you can name all the kids in my family. There was 13 of them. Oh, wow. So he named them all off. And I got through a lot of them, but I missed a couple. And he said, that was a pretty good job. So, <laughs> yes, we will sign with you. <laughs> he would have anyhow. But, but you know, listening to him, and I honestly, God, he talked for an hour and a half, you know. And there, there was times when I was on two or three hours with, with, with the people, and they were so excited because now their family is finally getting the recognition they deserve. You know, in this day and era, everybody thinks Vince McMahon created professional wrestling. I'm not taking anything away from them. They've expanded it worldwide and doing a fantastic job with it. But they forget about the legends and the people that put all their time in. It's such a, a great feeling be able to talk to them and hear the excitement in their voices and the stories I get from them about, about these individuals that really, you know, from 1950 to 57, professional wrestling was on the DuPont network out of Chicago. And that was the only, that was the first TV ever. And it got so popular. They ran it you know, for seven years and seven days a week and they kind of burned it out. But that's when my father realized the importance of TV. He used to tell me the story, you know, what had happened is the territories were still out there and the network TV, what they would do is they would call Fred Kohler and they would want, Oh, maybe they'd send Vernon Pat O'Connor up to Buffalo, New York. They'd send, uh, Luth, and, uh, killer Kowalski to Boston and Yukon Eric and somebody else Paffo down to, uh, St. Louis. So, Vernon was telling the story. He said, Pat and I, it was our first time out on the road from the DuPont network. They flew us into Buffalo, New York. The plane was delayed about an hour. We get into Buffalo. It's snowing. Traffic's backed up everywhere. We get in a cab. We're going to be late. And I turned to Pat and I said, you know, this is going to kill our gate tonight. And he said, Vern, I know it. You know, this is, this is horrible. Well, they got there. The traffic and all that was for the wrestling. They turned away about twenty-five to 30,000 people that night. And that's when they all realized the power of TV and what it meant to professional wrestling. Anybody you've been dealing with the, the power town figures with who, uh, I mean, you've worked so many places other than the AWA too over the years and also dealing with different promoters and everything. Is there anybody that you hadn't worked with before who you got to connect with out of this? Was, it, was there a lot of oh, those? Yeah, many of these people had, you know, I'd always heard about them. And, you know, growing up, always heard the names and that, but never had the opportunity to uh, to meet too many of them. I met quite a few, but not, you know, when you go over 200 of them, uh, it, it, it's, you're going to find people that, you know, they knew my name, they knew who I was, and they were happy to hear about me. And then we got talking and, and it, was, it, was like, uh, it was like a family reunion with everybody. And it was uh, it was one of the most rewarding things I think I've done uh, in a long time in professional wrestling. It's always interesting when something new happens in wrestling and what the reaction is to it. What did you think and what did your dad think of the idea of wrestling figures? And kind of what did the wrestlers all think about it when they first started being made? Because I didn't really realize until I was doing research for this that you guys were a year ahead of Vince McMahon and LJN. Yeah. We were ahead of everybody. I mean, uh, in 1980 or 1970s when they came out, uh, you know, we had a lot of talent signed to it. And like I say, it was the 
it was one of the biggest things that Remco Toys ever did was the professional wrestling. You know, uh, with the AWA, you know, our territory ran from Winnipeg to St. Louis all the way to the West Coast. You know, they talk about New York, the big territory where they had the big cities, but we covered more area and we were straight across Canada on TSN. And, uh, you know, we usually ran with, you know, 16 to maybe 18 pieces of talent and uh, only four or five matches on the card. And those buildings were sold out everywhere we went. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, the AWA and Vern created a, an atmosphere for professional wrestling that uh, brought it to uh, to the era where it is today. Well, I started watching wrestling in 1985, so AWA was appointment for me getting home from school. I believe it was on ESPN in the afternoon in a block with uh, with world class at the time too. So that's when, when that was when my sort of era of, of learning. I, I basically went from not knowing anything about wrestling to trying to go to like genius level in like a year at like six. So uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was near the end for us because McFadden yeah. was hitting us early and he was grabbing all our talent, our announcers. Um, and the reason there was still some fun stuff though. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I still fondly remember like the midnight rockers against uh, playboy, buddy Rose and pretty boy, Doug Summers pretty well. And they had fantastic matches too. No, they were, they were good, but they weren't, you know, at that time, I mean, Sean and, and Marty, they were just, they were still young and just, you know, only in the sport a couple of years. Um, uh, Buddy Rose and Doug Summers are a little more veterans. Vern trained both of them. Vern actually trained almost 144 wrestlers over his career. And back in those days, it was Eddie and Mike Graham. It was Vern. It was uh, Stu Hart. And then in Texas, it was it was uh, Joe Blanchard and the Bon Erics um, and the Funks that they were the ones responsible for training most of the people in professional wrestling. Uh, Killer Kowalski then started training people and he developed quite a few, but those four were really the originators of, of really getting all that talent that started back in the, in the fifties. Who was in your training class? And, and can you take me in there and explain what training with Vern Gagne was like specifically for you? I'm going to go into it. I'm going to give you a, lot, a few of the names that Vern trained over the years. Okay. Sure. Gene and Ole Anderson. Larry, you know, Gene, Ole, and Lars, all three of them. Larry right. Henning, Jack Lanza, Bulldog Bob Brown, uh, Blackjack Mulligan, Blackjack Lanza, uh, Jimmy Valiant, Jim Raschke, Baron Von Raschke, Dick the Bruiser, Paul Ellering, Ken Patera, Kazra Vasiri, uh, Sergeant Slaughter, Buck Sumhoff, Bob Rasmussen, Dale Lewis. Uh, our, our, our group was uh, Ken Patera, uh, Jim and myself, Rick Flair, Bob Bruggers, and the Iron Sheik. And also Ricky Steamboat and his partner. I mean, those are just a few of the names that burn. And then you go back in the, in the 50s and people that, that he... Uh, you know, Kurt Henning, and not from the 50s, but Kurt and his dad trained both of them. He also, uh, Dory Funk Sr. flew Vern down to Florida, to uh, Texas Amarillo for two, two, three, three, three weeks to get straight. Vern worked the territory, but in the daytime, he trained Dory Jr. and Terry. Um, 
you know, and he brought all these guys into the 50s. He was training guys back then. So the camp then, when we started, like I said, it was Ric Flair, Ken Patera, Jim Brunzel, myself, the Iron Sheik, and Bob Bruggers. And the first day, he, he usually had an invite. And somewhere between 50 and 100 guys would show up. And it was an old barn out in uh, near Chanhassen, Minnesota. He owned some acreage out there, 140 acres, and it was a horse barn. Uh, he didn't have any horses in it at the time. Uh, had no windows in it. It was two stories. The second story was the hayloft, and there was no hay in there. That's where he put the ring up, one little light bulb uh, over the ring, because uh, we had the nice high ceilings, and then no windows, and the doors were wide open. And we started after the Olympics in 1972, and we did six hours a day, six days a week. And there was probably 70 in our class. And after the first hour, there were six of us left. Wow. I uh, started out with an hour of calisthenics and then an hour in the ring of more calisthenics. And we had some, they had some, him and Billy Robinson, Billy helped train at that time. They had some <laughs> methods of training exercises that none of us had ever done or seen before. You know, stand on your head and with your turn with your feet in the turnbuckle and roll on your neck. You had to build your neck up for your stomach. Uh, I made teamed up with uh, Ken Patera and uh, I'd have to be on all fours. Ken would sit on my back facing my feet and then he would do a sit up. And when he do the sit up, he'd push my head down and then I'd have to push him back up with my neck. And then you'd have Flair and Brunzel and Cosro and, and, uh, and Bob doing the same thing, Bob Bruggers, then they'd switch it up and, you know, and you do, you know, three sets of, uh, 25 and we built up to 50, the free squats that we had to do the first hour, we had to build up to doing a thousand nonstop, took us 35 minutes to do that. Uh, more calisthenics. Then we started learning how to hit the ropes and protecting yourself. And when you hit those ropes, man, it would tear all the skin under your arm and down, down below your rib cage. And that would last for about three weeks. And then it would all go away and your body would just get hardened up. And then we would do, we'd probably do, we'd learn how to protect ourselves from falls, from body slams, from hip tosses, from backdrops. Um, and we would do, 500 to a thousand bumps in an hour. Wow. And then we'd go in and we'd do holds and counter holds and learn how to tie up. And then they would do some more, another hour of ring work with us where they would put two of us in the middle and the other guys on the outside. So you'd have maybe Patera and Flair in there and Patera would be uh, in charge or he'd be the head guy. So Vern would start calling out, okay, can headlock, uh, two tackles, hip toss, arm drag, body slam, cover him, kick out. And they would go for, for three to five minutes nonstop. And then Ken would stay in the ring and the next guy would get in. So each guy would go through, you know, if you went four minutes with each guy, it was probably longer than that. But, you know, you're looking at 20 minutes in the ring nonstop. And uh, when it got to be December, and you're at the end of the line after you got your sweat pants on, you're all sweating. By the time you got to the front, they were froze to your, froze to your body. And then they'd call a body slam right away. And you felt like the cartoon character. You thought your whole body broke up. 
<laughs> and then the, the last hour we did sprints and he, on this farm, he had a, there was a lake on it and we'd run 10, it was about, I'd say a good three quarters of the mile down to it. Uh, and we had run 10 yards, walk 10 yards, run 10 yards, come back to the barn. He took us across the street where he had some more land. It was on the Minnesota river, the river banks. We'd have to run up and down them and they were all clay and sand and then back to the barn. And it was usually Brunzel and I were usually the first two back. And then it was Pater or then it was Bruggers and Vasiri. And then here came Patera and, and Flair at the time. When they started the camp, Patera was 340 pounds, just came out of the Olympics. Right. Flair was 298. Man. And they'd, they'd come back, barely moving, barely shoveling their, their feet, probably a good eight to 12 minutes behind us in the dark. And uh, and then, uh, you know, in the daytime, the next day we had to get up and we had to do weights before we came to the training camp. You know what's fascinating about that roster of guys that you ran down? I'm thinking about Vern Gagne and in, in, in what his legacy is, and obviously, great performer, promotion that was you know did a lot of great things over a long period of time in a large geographic scope. But that list of absolute like stars that he produced, and what one thing I was thinking about as you were going through the whole routine is so many of those guys that you listed had a hell of a gas tank you know, guys that would, could really last for a long time in a long oh, yeah. match in the ring, even somebody like a, like a Sergeant Slaughter, who was a bigger guy, you know, you saw some of the matches that he would put on, you know, you, you think back to like Slaughter and Canodal and Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood and some of those matches that were long and he could really hang in there. And you got to think like, well, look at the way he was brought up in the business. So, he, yeah. he, well, that's what we were training. I mean, you know, you had to have that endurance. You couldn't get, he said, you can't get tired in the ring. You cannot get tired. And I'm, inter I'm interested in learning a little bit about some of the other guys that you worked with in your career. You mentioned, uh, we've mentioned Brody before with the figures. Of course, in the AWA, he was King Kong Brody, which I appreciated that you kept calling him that. Also, many other people know him as Bruiser Brody, but you Bruiser guys had Brody. a Bruiser already. No. He was a King Kong without a doubt. Yeah. He was a King Kong and a bruiser. What was it like to work with him, both uh, as a promotion and also I know you had multiple uh, big matches with him. Well, I'll tell you, we had, it was, it was, we, uh, Jim and I were tag team champions and we were on the, usually in the AWA, you wrestled about 270 days out of the year. Vern's theory was he gave his whole, his whole crew the whole month of May and first two weeks of June off. Because when summer hit in the north, people weren't going to go inside to watch wrestling. And he wanted guys to have time for their families. And then we only ran maybe three times a week during the summer. Then from uh, end of September to April 1st, we went balls out. And uh, it was very important for him that the talent had time off, that the talent made money, and they had time to spend with their families. It was very, very important to him. And, 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 uh, it goes back to, can I just go back a little bit? Would that throw you off here? No, that, that's fine. Okay, so when we've, my dad first started in Minneapolis in 1949, in the, going into 1950. His first match, he wrestled Abe King Kong Kashi in Minneapolis, and the promoters told him he was too small. So he won by disqualification, so they sent, sent him to Tulsa, Oklahoma. He bought a trailer 
pulled up behind the car, and I was only about two years old at the time. I was a year and a half, and we went to Tulsa, Oklahoma. His first week there, he won the light heavyweight NWA uh, championship. And I, I can vividly remember, this was 1950, mid-1950. I'm about two and a half years old, and he'd come home from the matches, and we lived the, the trailer was in a trailer park, and I'd sit on his shoulders, and we'd watch a drive-in movie. Couldn't hear it, but we watched it. And that was my big thrill for the night. So then in 1950, mid-1950, he gets a call from Fred Kohler in Chicago. And Fred says, hey, Vern, uh, we're going on the network TV. And your credentials uh, as an amateur wrestler, we'd love to have you there. So they fly, Vern tells the story. They fly him into Chicago. He gets to the amphitheater. He, he goes up to the locker room, and there's about 30 guys in there. And Fred Kohler says, hey, Vern, here's what we're going to do with you tonight. We're going to dress you up as a Martian, and we're going to lower you from the ceiling to the ring. And he said, Fred, the hell you are. He <laughs> said, I was a, a state high school wrestling champion, a Big Ten champion four times, NCAA champion. I was on the Olympic team. I've got my boots, my tights, and I'm going down to the ring, and all 30 of these guys can come down one at a time, two at a time, or three at a time, and if I can't beat them all, I'll quit. So Vern wrestled in his wrestling tights. And, and then he, and then in 1950, uh, a friend of mine told me this just a few weeks ago, that they found Vern, that he was the first athlete besides Babe Ruth that made $100,000, and, and he made it in 1950. Wow. So, you know, and, his, and from his amateur background and how he perceived wrestling and how he wanted to project it in the ring, uh, you had to wrestle. And like I said, our, I, I forgot about our last hour in the ring of training. We did an hour of submission wrestling. Wow. So we got done with the camp. He looked at all of us and he said, guys, no matter where you go or who you wrestler or whether it's in the ring or outside the ring, you don't have to be afraid of anybody. And we didn't know that until we had a couple of situations come up. We found out that, you know, I guess he knew what he was talking about. And now going back to what I, what I was trying to bring up before was just you versus Brody. <laughs> to me, that seems like that seems like a pretty intimidating guy, but obviously, you know what you're doing in there. Yeah, Jim and I wrestled. Uh, we won the tag team titles, and we we're on the road for two weeks. Ended up in Salt Lake City in a cage match with Sheik Adnan El Casey, Jerry Blackwell, and Ken Patera. And uh, that night, I got thrown over the top rope, and my foot caught, and my leg twisted, and my knee just burned like a son of a gun. The next day, we have to leave for Japan. We're going to wrestle in a two-week tournament. So get get to the airport. I fly from Salt Lake, Tokyo, Aisumini, Tokyo to Sapporo, Japan. 19 hours in the plane. We get to Sapporo. Cab picks us up. We got to go. We got to get dressed in the ring and or in the in the cab and get go right in the ring. We're in a tournament there. We won that match in about 17 minutes. The next night, we wrestled. Uh, Jumbo Saruta and Tenaru for 50 minutes. We won the match. Next night, we had Giant Bubba and Dory Funk Sr. for 45 minutes. We won that match. The next night, we had the pick, 
the, I guess it was the dream match for I don't know who, but not us. It was Stan Hansen and King Kong Brody. And they were like icons in Japan. Right. So we're, we get in the ring and, and as we were talking and I get, Jim's got his back to the, where they're Hansen and Brody are coming out. And all of a sudden the people just erupt and here they come into the ring. Jim gets hit with the cowbell. I get hit with the chain out of the ring. We go through the people hit us with a fire extinguisher, ran us into a wall. We both got cut up and we're not even in the ring yet. We got back around and as we're coming back, I saw this one little Japanese fella jump up and his chair folded up and I fell down and I grabbed it and Stan doesn't see very well. Right. And I fired it like a Frisbee and hit him right on the bridge of the nose, exploded his freaking nose. Oh my gosh. We get in the ring and we are just fighting for our lives. And when we got out, we were black and blue from here down from reaching up and hitting these guys. And we're, we're about 25, 30 minutes into the match. And Brody had, Jim had got me a tag and Brody was turned and I came off the top rope on the, with a good elbow on the top of his head and dropped him to his knees. As he went to his knees, I saw Jim get thrown over the top rope. And Brody puts me in a bear hug, locks both my arms. And I look up and Stan Hansen hits the ropes. And that's the last thing I remember when he hit me with the lariat. Wow. <laughs> and we met them, they, they won that match. And then we won the final one in Tokyo. Uh, and then Brody came in to the AWA. And he's in the ring, uh, different opponents, Jerry Blackwell first. Then he wrestles Slaughter, same thing. Gets in the match with him. Match never ends. He walks out of the ring back there. He says, I don't want to be in the ring with either one of them. And he pointed to me, I want him in the ring. Wow. And I said, I don't want to get in the ring with him. You know. He's six, seven. And he had busted my, when I got back from Japan and I went in, went to the doctor, they opened my knee up and the cartilage fell out in five pieces. So I had wrestled for two weeks straight with torn cartilage. So I was coming off that injury and he went right for my leg right away and it set me back. But then, uh, I don't know. He liked, because I guess because I fought him hard. Yeah. And, so and, could, and could that's what he, say. he said, I don't care how big you are. You fight. And you've got fire, and I want to be in the ring with you. That's yeah. what he promoters. And kind of a good paradox with you guys too, with the big, huge oh, Brody and the you know yeah. you in an underdog role, but an underdog who can, like you said, who can fight. So real underdog. Yeah. <laughs> so but, we uh, go ahead. Go. He was just he was a he was an unbelievable guy in the ring. Very an athlete for his size. Unbelievable. And uh, for him, it was kind of a, it made me feel pretty good that he would want to be in the ring with me. And, you know, how are the people going to buy this? How are they going to believe this? But they did. So we had uh, Tiffany Stratton on uh, the show several weeks ago, and she's uh, obviously doing great in NXT. And she mentioned that she would not be where she is without your help. Um, what do you think of her success to this point? And uh, what was it like getting to train her at the beginning? Well, a friend of mine called me one day and he said, I've got a young girl here. 
her parents are good friends of mine and she wants to be a professional wrestler. I said, well, you know, I haven't trained any women before. I, I said, he said, well, you just do it for a, a favor. And I said, well, let me meet her and get a little background on her. And uh, the WWE was coming to town and the main event was a ladder match uh, with six girls. Uh, Charlotte Flair, and I can't remember all of them that were in there at that time, but they had a heck of a match. And she's sitting there with me. I took her down there and I said, okay, after watching this thing, and I mean, these girls, these big tall ladders went off the ladder onto the floor, falling on ladders, and they all got hurt. And I said, so what? I said, now what do you think? Well, I can do that. And I said, you can't do that. You're not true. You haven't been trained. I could go in there right now. I said, you can't do that. I said, and if that's the attitude you're going to have with me, then I'm not going to, I don't want to train you. I'm not going to work with you. I said, you don't know how hard this sport and how hard this business is and what you have to do to get to the level that, that those girls just performed. Finally, uh, she didn't talk to me the rest of the way back. Then she called and said, okay, I want to do it. And uh, Ken Anderson had, a, had a, a camp and he had some young guys there that I had been working with. So I brought her out with three of the guys that I was working with and I ran her the same way. And I ran that Vern ran his camp. We weren't able to go six hours because we didn't have it that long, but we did the, the, the squats. We did the, the holds, the counter holds, uh, the bumps, uh, and everything that goes along with it. And, uh, she, she had a background of a, she was on the U S uh, gymnastics team right and she was very very good she was one of their top performers she got so good at it she was with it for about four years that she wasn't feeling she was being satisfied enough she wanted to move on she went into bodybuilding she won first place in that she did that for a year the next year she did um by weightlifting she set a lifting record in her weight class so she had a good background she was a good athlete but boy if she did have you know what you see on tv with her when that attitude comes across she's got one i actually uh sent her home three times i told her i was done if you're not going to listen to me head home and then the next time she'd come in and and she said, I'm tired tonight. And she lay on the side of the ring. And I said, well, while these guys are busting their asses up here, you need to get out of here and go home and find a different career. And then she started arguing with me. I said, don't argue with me. I, you know, I'm, you're not paying me to do this. I'm doing it as a favor to your parents and my friend. So I don't need this BS from you. Go home. So after the third time, uh, she left. She was gone for about 10 minutes, came back. Ten, Ken Anderson, I was working with the guy. She took her outside and kind of laid, laid, the, laid the wood to her a little bit. And uh, when she came in, she, she responded. And we worked hard and got her the position down at WWE. Or WWE. I got her a tryout down there. And uh, the athlete that she is, she should do very well. I mean, I'm really proud of her. She's done a fantastic job. Um, I said, you know, don't change your attitude. Be your, be who you are. That's what people will buy you. If you try to be somebody you're not, you're not going to make it.
but you know, the athlete that she was, she caught on quick. Uh, she's just, she's got a good, she's got a good feel for it. She's going to do, she's going to be a superstar in the, in the WWE. And I'm really, really proud of her. Yeah. She's so good. So early on too, but it's, it's interesting to hear about just the ways that you had to. And I think one of the keys for, especially for WWE is you have to be coachable and, uh, and, and you kind of showed her that. <laughs> I told her that if you have questions, here's the people you go up and talk to. And, uh, she did, she took that to heart. Um, she's, she's a great personality. She'll do well. Yeah. So we're going to move on to something we call the three count. Now it's going to be three quick questions and your answers. So, uh, when you Are were you a kid, answers? because you know, I go, I talk forever. They can be what, 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 what you need them to be. Uh, okay. when you were a kid, if there were wrestling action figures, who would maybe have been some, you know, three of your favorites that you would have liked to have, uh, played with as uh, wrestling figures? Well, I'll tell you, I was around such great talent back in the 50s. I would say, you know, of course, my dad, Wilbur Snyder, uh, Yukon Eric, uh, Angelo Paffo. I watched my dad when I was, I God, I must have been about six or seven. He took me to Milwaukee with him. No, I was a little older than that. I was about 10 or 11. And he was wrestling Angelo Poffo and he had uh, his manager with him and the place was sold out and they had a riot that night. Wow. And from there, then we went down and we stayed with Wilbur Snyder and his son, Mike was my age. And uh, down there they had Ray Stevens who I'd never seen before. Went to the match, watched him. He was phenomenal talent. Um, I think Ray would have probably been uh, one of my idols and is one of my idols. Uh, he he taught me a, a, a lot uh, about timing. And uh, it was just, he was just a heck of a guy. Heck of a guy. Harbold Haggerty was another one. Uh, Lou Thez, of course. So I was surrounded by a lot of fantastic talent. That's great. Uh, second question. One thing I love doing uh, on YouTube is watching some of the classic AWA interviews. Uh, my personal favorites are watching Nick Bockwinkle interviews because there's the, not one that's like the next, really. But do you have a favorite or a favorite uh, guy to, to remember from old uh, interviews, AWA-wise? The greatest interviewer, I think, of all time was Mad Dog Vachon. Mm. Have you seen... Have you ever seen the coffin interview with him and Gene Okerlund? I believe I have. Yeah. He was the most creative person I'd ever been around in my life. The most vicious. And I'll tell you a couple of stories about him, but we're doing interviews and we had it, we had to go on Monday mornings and it was usually about a 10 hour day. We'd have to do all the markets and there was five interviews in each TV show in each market. And, Gene Okerlund is there and, and we're ready for the mini uh, doing a Minneapolis interview and, or no, I, it wasn't Minneapolis. It was like Denver somewhere. Mm -hmm. And he, he said, where's the mad dog? He's up. Come on. It's been a long day. Somebody get him here. We can't find mad dog. And Gene's getting all worked up and he hears all this noise. The old channel 11 WTCN in Minneapolis, big studios. And in the back they had, it was almost like a big garage and, and he hears all this racket back there and he walked back there and he's got the microphone with him. And this is a true, I mean, this just happened out of the clear blue. 
and there's Mad Dog. He's got jeans on and a apron, uh, one of those uh, uh, old horseshoe, like a horseshoe would have on. Mm-hmm. And he's got a hammer and he's pounding. And Gene says to him first, hey, you got to do an interview. Can't you see what I'm doing here? <laughs> no, I don't know what you're doing here. What are you doing? What does it look like I'm doing? I am building a coffin. A coffin? Yes, a coffin for Jerry Fatwell. <laughs> and he went on and did his interview. And at the end of the interview, Gene was signing off and he's hammering like crazy. And they had all these paint cans up on the wall and he's hammering and all the paint cans came falling down. I mean, this thing was not scripted. Nothing was set up. This was all him doing what he did best. And then uh, last question I have for you, and it, it's just something that I, I go back and forth with some of my friends with. What do you remember about the Wrestle Rock Rumble? And uh, was that fun to do? Uh, it was It was fun to do. I wish we'd have been able to do it, you know, uh, before McMahon had taken most of the talent. Yeah. We had a great card on it. We had it in the Metrodrome. We threw about... 30, 25 to 30,000 people in there. But if it would have been in the heyday, uh, we'd have, sold, we'd have probably filled that thing up. Uh, but it was, uh, a, a ad company, uh, got involved and they came up with the, the Russell rock rumble. And then they had all of us do these little, uh, little type songs to go. Yeah. With. Yeah. I, 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 the one I always go back and forth with one of my friends with was always the Jerry Blackwell part. If you could do your Mad Dog Vashad exit, but I could do my Jerry Blackwell. He's just like, I'm Jerry Blackwell and I want the chic. <laughs> I want to get oh, my that's... hands on that pencil that geek. <laughs> yeah, good for you. That's good. Yeah. So they wrote all these little things and we all had to do them and they used them, you know, for promoting the, the matches coming up. Yeah, that, that was fun. And obviously it was, you know, take off of the Super Bowl uh, shuffle, I think it was, with the Bears oh, yeah. yep. back then exactly. too. So, um, Greg Gagne, it's so great to have you on today. Good luck with everything you're doing with Power Town and uh, all the best to you. And uh, really, really, really enjoyed this today. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, for all the people out there, check out Power Town. The slogan is Power Town, where wrestling lives on. And uh, we represent the legends of professional wrestling. We're staying away from McMahon's talent, but given the opportunity of men, women, the little people, the referees, the promoters, the announcers, all who built this great sport. And I'm proud to be part of it. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Phil, for having me. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me this week on Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. I want to thank my guest, Greg Gagne. I also want to thank Kayla Perez for helping set this up. Join us next week here for another episode of Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. Follow me on Twitter at Under the Ring, on threads at PJ Strum for all the latest announcements on guests, and have a great week, everyone.